This is Democracy, a podcast about the people of the United States, a podcast about citizenship, about engaging with politics and the world around you, a podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues and how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, uh, we are fortunate to be joined by a good friend, a truly great historian and scholar, and uh, really someone who has put more effort into understanding one of the most important topics of our day, uh, the legacies of the Iraq War, um, and more specifically, why we went to war about 20 years ago in in Iraq and in the larger Middle East. This is, of course, uh, Professor Melvin Leffler. Mel is a professor emeritus at the University of Virginia. He's written numerous books that have shaped fundamentally our understanding of U.S. foreign policy. Many books uh, I've assigned to many of my students who are listening, I know, and probably remember uh, at least carrying these books and hopefully reading them closely. Uh, Among my favorites, A Preponderance of Power, which I think uh, is the best single volume on the origins of the Cold War. Uh, Mel, earlier in his career, wrote about interwar foreign policy uh, between the United States and its European allies. And uh, his most recent book, the book we're going to talk about today, uh, Confronting Saddam Hussein, George W. Bush, and the Invasion uh, of Iraq, just recently published to coincide with the 20th anniversary of this war. Mel, congratulations on your book, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jeremy. I'm delighted to talk to you. It's great to engage another fellow historian who's written so thoughtfully about so many different aspects of American history. So, and this is an important time to discuss the invasion of Iraq. So I'm I'm glad to be to join you. Thank you, Mel. Uh, Before we get started, of course, we have our uh, weekly scene setting poem for Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? An 18-year-old recalls a 20-year war. Let's hear it. When the war is over, I say we must count our chickens, count our marbles, count our dead, and ask ourselves how many have jumped over the moon. When we jumped over the moon, strolled into their dining rooms, and like cats ran away with the spoon, did we somehow assume the world would turn with us too, that our armies would bring no flying shoe. Fortune favors the bold, the stubborn. Fortune favors the men of steel, the morals of rubber. Fortune favors the Adonis, the Cupid. But fortune, she often mistreats the stupid. <laughs> what, what is your poem about, Zachary? Well, my poem uh, is about uh, trying to reconcile uh, the way that the Iraq War has shaped my life and my understanding uh, of of American power and American policy, um, as someone who was born after the Iraq War began, uh, but is still incredibly influenced and affected by it, uh, but also about the the sort of level of ignorance with which we came into the war, uh, particularly the ignorance of, of the society we were entering, uh, and and also I think the lack of reflection or at least serious reflection uh, after the war, which uh, which hopefully uh, we can. We can uh, aim for today on our episode 20 sure. year, almost exactly 20 years to the day right. since we invaded Iraq. Right. Zachary, Zachary, that's that's really salient because uh, two of the key themes of my book are about power and hubris. And we can talk about what hubris means along with one factor you didn't mention, 
which I think is of compelling importance as well, and that is fear. So fear, power, hubris are the big themes of my book. And I know, I know Jeremy's going to want to talk about some of those things. Well, we're going to try to get at all of them because uh, you you analyze them so carefully and so eloquently in, in your book, Mel. Let, let's start at the beginning uh, uh, with fear. Uh, your book opens uh, in many ways with, uh, as it should, the attack of 9-11, of September 11th, 2001, the uh, failure, it's only obvious in retrospect, of the Bush administration and, and others to anticipate this attack. How did the September 11th attack change, in particular, President Bush? Jeremy, I think the attack on 9-11 was incredibly determinative. Actually, as you know, my book does not start really with 9-11. It starts with uh, a biographical chapter about Saddam Hussein, and then another chapter about the first eight or nine or 10 months of the George W. Bush administration. And what I tried to do in those two chapters is illuminate the character, behavior, opportunism, brutality of Saddam Hussein's regime. And then I try to outline the ambiguities, ambiguities with regard to the administration of George W. Bush in terms of dealing with Saddam Hussein. Basically, I demonstrate uh, in contrast to so many other books, I demonstrate that despite the rhetorical commitment to regime change and that despite the hatred and contempt for Saddam Hussein, policymakers inside the Bush administration and the president himself could not decide on any policy toward Iraq prior to 9 11. In fact, I show that Iraq, despite all the rhetoric about it by so many writers, was simply not a top priority of the administration prior to 9-11. Yes, they focused some attention on it, but it was not a top priority and they could not resolve what to do. 9-11 then was a transformative moment. It was transformative not because it riveted American policymakers' attention on Iraq. It was transformative because it reshaped the whole perception of threat. Nobody grappling with the Bush administration's foreign policies after 9-11 or with its specific policies toward al-Qaeda, Iraq, or uh, al-Qaeda, Afghanistan, or Iraq, can, be, can even begin to come to terms with those policies unless one grasps the magnitude of threat perception. After 9-11, policymakers were absolutely certain there would be follow-on attacks. They had every reason to believe there would be follow-on attacks. Intelligence reports every single day communicated the fact that al-Qaeda wanted to inflict more pain on the United States, and in fact, in even greater magnitude than what had happened on 9-11. So threat perception was transformed by 
And gradually, especially after the Taliban were dislodged from power in Kabul and after al-Qaeda Al Qaeda terrorists were forced to flee from their training camps in Afghanistan. After that happened, attention began to gravitate on Iraq for a number of very, very good reasons. And if you want me to explicate those reasons, I'll be glad to do so. Absolutely, because one point you make so clear, in fact, you make it a number of times, Mel, is that. the Bush administration to the very top recognized that Saddam Hussein was not responsible for 9-11. So one of the at least surface paradoxes is although he was not responsible, then you show they become more concerned about Saddam Hussein. Why is that? Yes, they become extraordinarily concerned about Saddam Hussein. And there uh, are a convergence of factors that lead policymakers or lead the president to really focus on Iraq. Now, some officials, as is well known, and as I point out in my book, some officials like Donald Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz, immediately upon the shock of 9-11, wanted to focus attention on Iraq. I show in my book that the president simply did not agree with that priority. But his own views evolved over the next six six or 10 weeks. Why did, why did they evolve? Why did he begin to focus more and more attention on Iraq? First of all, there were reports, um, and, and absolutely um, truthful reports, that the Saddam Hussein regime was gloating over the impact of 9-11. Saddam Hussein was are probably the only leader in the entire world who expressed gratification, satisfaction, and praise for the terrorist attack on 9-11. The president was informed about this. Two, after um, 9-11, within a couple of weeks after 9-11, anthrax spores began circulating in American mail. Several postal workers died as a result of the anthrax spores. These envelopes with anthrax turned up in the Senate office building. Government buildings then closed down. You may recall that even the Supreme Court was forced to move its deliberations to another location. And then in the middle of October, specifically on October 18th, censors went off inside the White House itself suggesting that there was a toxic substance inside the White House. That turned out not to be true, but it illuminated the growing perception of threat from a biological and from biological or chemical weapons. At the same time, during these very, very weeks in October and November of 2001, as American special forces moved into Afghanistan, and as they occupied the training camps of al-Qaeda fighters, they found incontrovertible evidence, truly incontrovertible evidence, that the al-Qaeda terrorists were seeking to develop or acquire weapons of mass destruction, especially chemical and biological weapons. At the same time that this was going on, information was flowing into 
Washington into the intelligence agencies that Saddam Hussein was restarting or accelerating his biological and chemical weapons programs. Now, once again, subsequently, it was found that those reports were mistaken. But if you want to understand why the focus of attention gravitated to Iraq, it was because during the during these months, there was a heightened perception of threat. There was a growing apprehension of chemical and biological attacks. And there was burgeoning information that Saddam Hussein had restarted his chemical and biological programs or or was or was accelerating them. Hence, the president's attention gravitated to Iraq. And a key factor in this also was that after the Taliban government was dislodged and al-Qaeda fled from its training camps, there was a tremendous sense of empowerment inside the Bush administration, a tremendous sense of success. Uh, they had been accused for several weeks that their efforts in Afghanistan were falling short, that the administration would be caught in another quagmire like Vietnam. And then within two or three weeks, in late November, early December, the whole trajectory of war inside Afghanistan changed dramatically. And suddenly, al-Qaeda fled from their camps, the Taliban government was dislodged, and there was a great sense of power, of increased power, that the United States now had the power to deal with the threats that it perceived. And that threat now was not exclusively in Iraq, but certainly in Iraq. With the benefit of hindsight um, and your expertise, how real do you think those perceived threats were? I'm speaking specifically about the perception that there would be another 9-11 or that there would be further terrorist attacks, that American inter- fur- further American intervention in the region was necessary to prevent sort of this imminent danger. Personally, I'm convinced that the perception of threat was extremely real and extremely high. Every single mem- memoir attests to that. Even even memoirs by people who turned out to be very critical of the administration's focus on Iraq, like uh, like Richard Clark, the counterterrorist expert. He he was very much opposed to to the focus on Iraq. But was he obsessed with the prospect of another attack? Yes, he was was obsessed. Um, the the memoirs, the interviews the memoranda of the time, all all are conclusive in my opinion. It's It's not even questionable that there was a huge perception of threat. There was a great deal of fear. Now, now Zachary, I wouldn't say that that was the only emotion that existed. Um, There was also a great sense of anger a great sense of embarrassment and humiliation over the fact that 9-11 had occurred on so-called, on their watch. The administration officials, I write in my book, felt a great deal, I use the word guilt, 
Some of people in the administration don't like that word, but I think it's an appropriate word. I think they felt a great deal of guilt that they had been warned about a prospective attack by al-Qaeda that would be gigantic and astonishing, and they had minimized the likelihood of that happening. They knew the top policymakers, including President Bush himself, knew and acknowledged that they had not paid enough attention to the warnings that had existed prior to 9-11. That is not to suggest that they could have prevented 9-11, but what was in their heads, and that's what's important, what was in their heads was the knowledge that they themselves had minimized the likelihood of such an attack and had not done everything that they might have done to try to preclude it. So in a sense, they are now compensating. They have a tremendous sense of responsibility. That's that's a term I use and I take seriously. These people did have a sense of responsibility that their overriding obligation was to prevent another attack on American soil and to thwart any attacks on Americans living abroad. So the the perception of threat was very, very real. It was not at all contrived. You can argue, and some people have, many people have, that focusing on Iraq was the wrong way to go about dealing with the threat. But if you're just asking me about the perception of threat, it was palpable. So I think the heart of your book, at least to my reading, and I think one of your many contributions, Mel, is to lay out what you think the Bush administration strategy was from just where you left off, from this sense of fear and guilt and responsibility in the wake of 9-11. Your chapter five is called Coercive Diplomacy. I think uh, Condi Rice, Bush's NSC advisor, uses that exact phrase uh, herself. Um, and, And you argue that the Bush administration, and the president in particular, in late 2001, early 2002, becomes determined, for reasons you've already articulated here, becomes determined to either disarm or dislodge Saddam Hussein. He's never certain whether it's both, but certainly he wants to prevent the development of weapons of mass destruction, the phrase that's used repeatedly. And at times he makes he makes it clear he also wants regime change. These are the two elements they're pursuing. Tell us about this strategy, because this is also where I think your critique of the Bush administration comes in. Yes, um, that's a wonderful summary of some of the points I make, Jeremy. Thank you. Uh, I wish I could s- say those things as succinctly and accurately uh, as, as you just did. So. I think an important starting place is to realize that war planning, which the president initiates in very late November and begins to take place in December of 2001, war planning does not mean war. War planning does not mean a commitment to go to war. That is an indispensable part of my argument. What the and and to illuminate that, I point out as just one of many examples of of compelling evidence, an interview that General Tommy Franks, 
the head of central command gave uh, in 2000, I think 14. It was not an interview that I conducted. It was an interview that other people conducted and that is available now at, at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia. Tommy Franks was, was asked about, you know, whether he thought the president was determined to go to war after meeting the president during Christmas time at his ranch to discuss the first iterations of the war plan. And Tommy Franks said explicitly, no, I never had the sense that President Bush was determined to go to war. I had the sense that he was determined to put us in the best position to wage war should he decide that it was necessary to, to do so. And it's getting to your essential question, what's so interesting here is that when Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and General Tommy Franks began working on these war plans in December of 2001, their first assumption that they enumerate goals of the war, should it take place, goals of the war, and they list two things, and they're really interesting to focus on and think about in the long run, because they talk about two things, regime change, WMD, those are the two things. They don't assign priorities to them, and Jeremy also notice what I think is extremely important and has huge ramifications as the year proceeds. They don't list democracy promotion or freedom or nation building. None of those things are not mentioned as a goal. Those were not the things on the minds of Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld and General Tommy Franks. WMD and regime change. And the president comes to believe, and this was the heart of coercive diplomacy, that by mobilizing American power, threatening the prospect of war, deploying American forces, he could intimidate Saddam Hussein either to flee or to disclose and relinquish his alleged weapons of mass destruction. In my analysis, I show that President Bush and Condi Rice, his national security advisor, never really resolved which of those two, priori two priorities WMD or regime change was their overriding goal. But they believed that through military force and intimidation, they could achieve one or another or both of these objectives. And by the way, most observers around the world also believe that the only way to get Saddam to comply with his previous promises was through the threat of force. Even people who did not want to use force believed that Saddam would not change unless threatened with force. So one of the keys to keep in mind here, especially during these months from September 
2001 to September 2002 is to realize that through this entire period of time, Saddam Hussein is extraordinarily recalcitrant. During this entire period of time, Saddam Hussein is not complying with UN resolutions. Hans Blix, the head of the UN inspection process, wants to get Saddam Hussein to invite back the inspectors. But again and again, the talks between the regime and the UN monitors fail. And so increasingly during, during this period of time, in the spring of 2002, there is a growing perception that only through coercive diplomacy, only through the threat of force, might you get Saddam Hussein either to comply or to flee. So you make the point, Mel, that as late as the summer of 2002, really a year after uh, the September 11th attacks, and even later than that, uh, President Bush has still not decided on going to war. You, you stress that repeatedly. You remind us through the narrative. He still hasn't decided. What was he preparing to do if coercive diplomacy did not work? What was his alternative? Oh, if, if coercive diplomacy did not work, he was prepared to go to war. So th that, that is clearly the case. But he hoped, he hoped that coercive diplomacy would work. R right. But, but, but so and then in a sense, he had, he had closed off his options pretty early on, if that's the case, right? He... It, in, he had he had made the determination as as his national deputy national Sec security advisor said either either that either Saddam complies or Saddam leaves either Saddam complies or Saddam leaves. So was that wise? Was that a was that a was that a wise position to take? No, I think I I do not think it was a, a wise position, and I'm I'm critical of the conduct of the diplomacy. I'm critical of the fact that if if President Bush's overriding priority, if it was gaining control of the of the alleged weapons of mass destruction, he did not conduct coercive diplomacy in a way that provided inducements or enticements to Saddam Hussein to comply. So in effect, he was entrapping himself. He, he, was, he was vesting his credibility and America's credibility in one or another outcomes. And one outcome was that Saddam would comply the other outcome would be that he would be forced to flee, or a third outcome might be that the threat of force would induce some of his lieutenants to murder him, and that that was also on on the minds of of, of some policymakers. But yes, if you're if you're saying that that by embarking on coercive diplomacy, he cuts off an option of absolutely. Um, not going to war, that, 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 that is true. Now, one has to decide whether that was, I, I, I don't think that was smart, but in grappling with the possible options, 
one do, does need to think, okay, if Saddam was not threatened with force, if Saddam was not threatened with force, would he have ever even allowed back the inspectors? And if the inspectors were not allowed back, would that have been a tolerable situation? If there was not another UN resolution that was in part catalyzed by this program of coercive diplomacy, if there was not another UN resolution, and if the allies divided amongst themselves, France and Germany and the United States and Britain, if they, if they divided uh, amongst themselves and sanctions collapse and sanctions were not collapsing the, and sanctions were collapsing, then you would have had the prospect of no inspections and no sanctions. And was, should policymakers have regarded that as a satisfactory situation given the perception of threat. So that's, that is the policymaking dilemma that I think the, the officials are facing. And yes, uh, coercive diplomacy vests American credibility in, a, in one of two outcomes, but would not doing it have been more satisfactory? That's, that's the key question. Right. What about the domestic politics of <clears throat> this kind of coercive uh, diplomacy? I think uh, the you 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 mentioned the, the sense of fear of of terror, uh, not just among policymakers, I think, but also among the public at the time. In in what what role did did the American public and and domestic politics play in the calculus that led eventually to war? Well, what what, what I think is in interesting here is that there was a pervasive sense of threat and I show amongst the public and I show in my book that many Democrats shared that perception, especially the leading Democrats like Al Gore and Hillary Clinton. The major difference between the Republicans and the, uh, between the Democrats and the Bush administration with regard to this perception of threat, I would say was the was that Democrats believe there should be much more of a multilateral effort, that the administration should work much harder at trying to cooperate with America's allies and not act unilaterally. But the perception of threat by most Democrats was similar to the perception of um, of, uh, of of the, of the Republican leaders. Now, what what is interesting, Zachary? But you, your question is an extremely good one. What role does public opinion play? One of the important factors I suggest here, although I don't have conclusive evidence, but I have some evidence, is that Republicans in the administration, like President Bush and his top political advisors were extraordinarily worried about what would be the public reaction if there actually were another attack. And the there was widespread belief, and the top policymakers, including President Bush himself, several times said, if there is another attack, there is no doubt I am going to be held responsible. 
And so the the sense that an, that another attack could have huge domestic political political ramifications weighed heavily on Republican policymakers. I would not say, and I don't believe that it was determinative, but it was a contributing factor to the way they pursued their policies. I, I guess, Mel, that's one area I wanted to push back a little bit. You, you say, to, this is in your conclusion uh, on page 249, that Bush succeeded, these are your words, succeeded at preventing another major attack on American soil. How do we know? Well, we, we know that there was no subsequent major attack, one. And we, all, we also know pretty conclusively from information that was derived at the time that, that Al-Qaeda certainly aspired to, inf- in, to inflict more damage and to undertake additional attacks. So that's, that's the evidence uh, that there was none and that the adversary and terror, various terror, terrorist groups clearly would have liked to do so. So I think the measures, I, by the way, I don't say that the war in Iraq prevented another terrorist attack. I do say, actually, that the war in Iraq complicated the global war on terror and made it more difficult and contributed to the to jihadism around the globe. So I'm not saying that the that the war in Iraq prevented prevented another attack, but I do believe that overall the policies of the administration, some of which I think were repugnant and illegal and and immoral, um, did contribute to thwarting another attack. Uh, Mel, when Bush finally decides to go to war, and you you chronicle this very closely in the book, and I hope all of our listeners will read it because it's really the best account I've seen, certainly, in March of 2003, um, why does it go so badly? That That's something you, you have a chapter on, really a chapter and a half in the book. Of course, it's another whole book unto itself. Uh, but why you call it mission awry? Why does it go so wrong? That's a wonderful question. and. It's critical to the tragedy that unfolded. It goes awry, in my assessment, because of very poor planning inside the administration with regard to the post-war phase of of the um, invasion. Very little attention was focused by President Bush and his top advisors on so-called phase four, the post-war stabilization phase. There was a lack of consensus amongst the top policymakers about what they wanted to actually accomplish inside Iraq. So I I argue in my book that although President Bush did did not go to war, to promote freedom. He did want freedom to emerge, some aspect of freedom or democracy to emerge if the United States did go to war. But I also show 
that some of his top policymakers, like Secretary Rumsfeld and General Franks, were not interested in freedom and democracy and nation building. So there was a lack of clarity about goals, a lack of preparation for some of the most critical issues they would face in the post in as soon as Saddam Hussein was toppled. Only in the weeks before war did the top policymakers really begin to grapple with what are we going to do with the Iraqi army once it what what once it capitulates? Uh, what are we going to do with the top echelons of Baathite supporters in in the civilian agencies? What type of government, interim government, are we going to support? These critical questions were not really resolved in any effective way prior to the invasion. And then there was tremendous confusion in the first weeks of the liberation slash occupation, tremendous confusion about what ought to be done. And in addition, and perhaps most important of all, there were inadequate troops to preserve order and security. That decision rests very, very heavily on Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, who believed in using a very lean force and quickly rotating troops out of or out of Iraq. So it it weighs it it Rumsfeld bears huge responsibility for the inadequate number of troops, but ultimately Bush acquiesces to that. And there is huge disorder. What I demonstrate is that the failure of the occupation becomes clear during the very first months in April, May, June, and July of 2003 because of inadequate planning, insufficient troops, incredible feuding within the administration, and um, a total lack of preparation for the challenges that 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 emerged. To, to me, Mel, this is a mystery after reading your account, uh, your searing account, I think. And in a sense, Rumsfeld is your villain on the American side. But how is it possible that a president could go to war conscious of the the burden you you show that bush is not um is is not lightly going to war he's careful as you point out he takes many measures he listens to tony blair repeatedly he he tries to to get the outcome he wants without war how does he then go to war without thinking about what the end state will be i think that's jeremy where the hubris comes in and um, so, some people say that I don't assign enough attention to ideology. But when I talk about hubris, it in part incorporates notions of ideology. But basically, the answer to your question is that President Bush really believed that Iraqis would embrace American soldiers and American troops. Uh, Iraqi exile leaders in Washington told the president, and he asked them, how, how will our soldiers be met? And the Iraqi exiles told him, with flowers and chocolates. That's, that, that, that's, that's what they told him. And uh, President Bush 
believe that. Now, it was not total naivete. What resonated in Bush's mind and in the mind of Condi Rice and Dick Cheney and many other leaders was what had happened during their own lifetime. What's on their mind is the triumph in the Cold War. What they are remembering, literally, and they explicitly say this, we remember when the Berlin Wall came down. We remember Germans dancing on the streets, East Germans dancing on the streets of Berlin, um, jubilant over the fall of the over the fall of the Berlin Wall. We remember East Europeans celebrating their freedom. The United States, in the view of President Bush and Condi Rice, had waged a Cold War for forty years had produced freedom, and that freedom was met, was met with excitement and enthusiasm by the peoples of Eastern Europe. And they extrapolated that the Iraqis would react the same way, that Iraqis would embrace Americans. And I say it was hubris, and I explicitly say, because it did not demonstrate an understanding of Iraqi society, Iraqi culture, Iraqi history. Why, why would Iraqis not meet Americans with smiles and chocolates and uh, etc.? Because the Kurds in the north felt that the United States had betrayed them again and again. Not, 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 not just Bush, but Bush's father, um, but, also, but also during the Nixon administration, Kurds felt that the United States had repeatedly sold them out. Shia in the south of Iraq felt that President Bush's own father had encouraged them to rise up after the Persian Gulf War and then had done nothing when Saddam Hussein had crushed them brutally. So lots of Iraqis had huge misgivings about the United States to begin with. That is not to say that they were unhappy with the removal of Saddam Hussein. They, they, Iraqis, by this point in time, loathed Saddam Hussein. But at the same time, they were not jubilant about an American occupation, and they were incredibly skeptical, and their skepticism turned to contempt, even hatred, when the United States immediately showed an inability to preserve order and stability. And Iraqis, you know, said to American journalists at the time, this is in May, June, July of 2003, we cannot understand how the United States, with all its power, can defeat Saddam Hussein constitute a hegemonic presence in the international arena and fail to preserve order and stability inside Iraq. There is something amiss here. That's the way Iraqis felt. And it generated incredible distrust. And of course, for many other reasons, the confluence of circumstances, insurrectionary activity uh, um, uh, emerged almost immediately. But but Mel, why did these policymakers emphasize that memory, that historical memory of the end of the Cold War more than Vietnam? They had all been seared, 
as as you were growing up by the <laughs> Vietnam War, right? I mean, Dick Cheney, Don Rumsfeld, one cannot George H W George W Bush, one can't talk about their biographies without the early experience of Vietnam is formidable for them. I I th- I think Jeremy, I mean that's a, that's a very uh, good question, but I think that that triumph in the Cold War is the compelling thing on their minds. And especially keep in mind, these were the policymakers. Condi Rice was in the administration in 1989 and 90 and 91 and worked on the National Security Council staff. Vice President Cheney was uh, the Secretary of Defense. These people believed, firmly believed, that they had brought about the triumph of the United States in the Cold War and that it had been a monumental success and that what they had learned, what they had learned, I think this speaks to your very good question, what they had learned was toughness, boldness, rearmament had actually contributed to victory in the Cold War. They associated themselves with the policies of, of Ronald Reagan, building power, championing freedom, boldly declaring your values. Those were the things that led to success. That was their perception. That was their perception. So we always like to close, Mel. You, you've been so uh, generous with your time. And uh, I do hope all of our uh, listeners will read your book because you've shared some of the highlights, but there's so much more. And and as always with your work in particular, Mel, the details are often as exciting and interesting as the larger argument. Um, but in the end, I know because I've been talking to you about this for 20 years, I, I know you've you've studied this issue so closely, not simply as a historian, but also as a citizen who cares about democracy, which is, of course, our weekly theme. And someone who cares about international uh, peace, harmony, and survivability. Um, what are the lessons you draw? I mean, I, it seems to me you are warning us about those very uh, topics that Zachary brought up in his poem that you highlighted at the very start about hubris, about power, about fear. W- what What are the lessons we should we should take today as we look at a war in Ukraine and as we deal with our democracy at home? I, I think there there are clear clear le- lessons. One, Americans need to modulate their perception of threat and calculate threats much more carefully. The loose talk about Iraq constituting an existential threat, or even Al Qaeda constituting an existential threat, was exaggerated rhetoric. Uh, The United States needs to modulate its perception of threat and calculate its vital interests very carefully. What precisely are our vital interests? So I think that's one lesson. Other lessons, grasp the limits of American power. You know, that is an unmistakable lesson of what happened here, exaggerating what the United States can do, believing and assuming and postulating that the United States can really transform other societies and cultures is a huge overestimation of American power. Yes, it's desirable to promote freedom 
and individual rights I, I, and, and democratic institutions, but one needs to grasp the limits of America's power and to find appropriate tactics that will bring about incrementally positive ends without overcommitments. Third, curb your hubris. Americans need to curb their hubris. They need, by, and by that I mean to say, they need to, ha to really develop a better understanding of the societies that they're dealing with and not simply extrapolate that all peoples everywhere want to emulate the United States or that American values are of utmost importance. Clearly in Iraq, after the, the liberation, after the toppling of Saddam Hussein, it is unmistakable that Iraqis felt that security, order, stability were far more important than the rhetoric of freedom and democracy that seemed to be pie in the sky while there was total disorder on the streets, while increasingly people were being killed and their, proper, their property infringed upon, uh, not by Americans necessarily, but by one another, and there was no security. So cur curbing hubris. I think it's also important for the United States to define its goals clearly and to think very wisely about them. In, in this respect, the, as, as I tried to point out early in the discussion, the assumptions at the beginning of the whole Iraqi venture was regime change or, or control of Iraq's alleged weapons of mass destruction. The initial focus was not on democracy promotion. And Bush, in, Bush wants that, but he didn't clarify that as a goal. And therefore, there was not appropriate preparation uh, for that. So and there are many other lessons, but in terms of basic promotion of democracy, both at home and abroad, curbing your hubris, grasping the limits of your power, calculating threats effectively, defining vital interests carefully, all of that would contribute mightily to the health of America's democracy. And those are all uh, easier said than done, as Absolutely. You, as, as you've pointed out, Zachary. Um, as you said in your poem so eloquently, right? You're an 18 year old, your generation, and uh, our the generation that's taking over our democracy. You didn't live through this, uh, just as most of my undergraduates now didn't live through this. Uh, how does the Iraq War in this discussion? And Mel's book and scholarship, how, how does it offer some lessons and pathways for you and your generation? Well, I think that uh, one of the things that the Iraq uh, debacle, debacle, if you will, shows us is that uh, the importance uh, and the perception uh, of, of trust in, in policymakers and in the so-called experts is vital to um, our society, our democracy. I think one of the lasting uh, lasting uh, effects of the Iraq war was that Americans lost a lot of trust in their government. And I think that one of the problems that we have failed to address in the past 20 years is the way in which uh, that uh, failure 
continues continues to haunt the relationship between Americans and their government. Uh, and, and I think it, it shows how important it is, even uh, on, on specific decisions that seem to be solely matters of foreign policy or solely uh, concerns of, uh, uh, for, for, for the military or, or military matters. Uh, it's important to keep in mind uh, that, that those, de- those decisions, those policies, that planning has a huge impact on the health of our democratic institutions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Zachary, I would ju- just conclude um, uh, by saying that your, your observations are so pertinent. One of the clearly lasting consequences of the Iraq war was to sunder trust in, in the American government because a vast number of Americans, even well-informed Americans, believe that the policymakers simply lied to the American people. I do not believe that is the case. I believe the policymakers did believe that Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction, and I talk a lot about that uh, in in my book. I, I think that they erred egregiously but they also at the same time exaggerated their confidence about the weapons of mass destruction. So yes, they believed that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, but they exaggerated their own degree of confidence about that to the American people, which contributed greatly to America's disillusionment. So today, I think the majority of Americans, I've not seen recent polls, but I think the majority of Americans, even listening to the commentary the last few few days, um, reporters and journalists often, you know, use the term that the administration lied to the American people or manipulated the evidence. Um, I, I don't think that that is true. I believe that they misconstrued the evidence. I think that it was understandable why they did so, but they should bear responsibility for the exaggerated rhetoric uh, that they used. And they should have re-examined their basic assumption that Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction. I'll just conclude by saying, Jeremy, you know, it's so easy for for me and for any observer to say that the policymakers should have re-examined their fundamental assumption. Their fundamental assumption was Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. There was good reason for that assumption. He had had them, he had used them, he had lied about them, he had concealed them. So there was good reason for them to believe that. But there was also lots of evidence that I suggest that I point out in my book for them to step back and say, well, today, does he really have them? And they were unwilling, based on the lacuna in the evidence, they were unwilling to step back and re-examine. And they bear responsibility for that, even though they did continue to believe mistakenly that the regime had weapons. That has so sundered trust in the American people, and it's the lack of trust that is critical to so much that is going on domestically and internationally. Zachary, you've hit it on the head. 
I have nothing to add except to uh, remind our listeners that the whole purpose of our podcast is each week is just this, for us to do what Mel and Zachary have done so well in this discussion, to force us all to reexamine our assumptions. Democracy grows and prospers when we come out of our positions and actually examine our positions, reexamine our assumptions on the basis of evidence of the world around us. And that's a hard thing to do, but it's absolutely essential. Mel, you've always done that in your scholarship and you've always reminded us how important that is. It's what you call prudence, I think. And it's what we all we all need to focus on. Uh, I hope all of our listeners will, re- will read uh, Mel Leffler's book, Confronting Saddam Hussein, and use this moment to rethink the legacies of the Iraq War. Thank you, Mel, for joining us today. Thank you so much. Great to talk to both of you. Real thank, pleasure. Thank you, Zachary, for your poem, as always, and your wonderful comments as well. And thank you most of all to our loyal lo- listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.